Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 156 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the what the heck? kind of number is that again episode of the sls cast because it turns out that 156 happens to be all sorts of different kinds of fucking numbers in mathematics 156 is an abundant number it's a pronic number it's a dodecagonal number it's a refactorable number and it's a harshad number now, I didn't go into what all those kinds of numbers were, except for an abundant number. And just to give you an idea of why I didn't go into the other ones, it turns out that an abundant number is a number for which the sum of its proper divisors is greater than the number itself. Yeah, see, I I don't get it either. But it's all these kinds of numbers. So yes... If you're looking for an abundant number, a prionic number, a dodecagonal number, a refactorable number, and a Harshad number, all in the same number, that number is 156. And with that clearly just dizzying intellectual knowledge about the mathematics of 156, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And I must say, Matthew... I am missing those schnooker references after hearing about uh, math for the past minute and 20 seconds. I'm telling you what, it's something else, man. What is it? I was... Dodecagonal? Piece <laughs> the fuck out of me, man. Like I said, <laughs> once I looked up what an abundant number was, I'm like, fuck trying to look up all this other shit. I just couldn't believe that 156 was all those kinds of numbers. That's, when you, that, that's sure the type of stuff that you look up and you get, a, you, like you... Uh, somebody's dissertation pops up because no normal website is going to have refer like either reference this stuff or even try to define this stuff this is this is dissertation work right oh yeah here. i mean i'm hoping that somewhere out there is someone at mit who literally just creamed their pants hearing about their number you know maybe there's some guy out there listening to the show by the name of hershad and he totally just blew his wad when we mentioned his number. So, what would that sound I like? <laughs> I don't even want to speculate. <laughs> so, yes, it would sound like some functified goat being jerked off. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I did. That was my impersonation. I do, I do great impersonation impersonations of animals getting jerked off. That is my nice. that was my talent. Outstanding. Outstanding. So, um I guess how was your Thanksgiving, sir? My Thanksgiving was lovely. Ate ate some really good food. It wasn't quite the smorgasbord as the uh, as the Tim family back in Texas uh usually puts on. But the significant others family up in Sacramento, man, they great turkey, great stuffing, great uh, great green bean casserole, great bread, great gravy, and it was just delicious. It's it's kind of nice having more of a meal than a buffet, I guess. Uh, so it was nice. How was yours? Did the you know did did the food turn out as well as you could have hoped? 
Oh, yes. Yes, I, I believe I have now been promoted to official turkey master for uh, my whole family at this point. We did a 22-pound turkey, and I did all of my wonderful special techniques. And when we went to take it, like, they were taking pictures of it. It came out, like, magazine quality. I was really impressed. And then we go to slice it, or we, I, go to actually carve it. And, and as and I'm it slicing... And there's only <laughs> bone left inside? <laughs> a little dry. A little dry. It's fine. <laughs> um, we, we did watch that movie that night, though. Anyway, so I go to slice it, and, I mean, as the as the perfectly carved piece of breast meat falls over onto the knife and fork so that I can put it on into the serving dish. I mean, it's literally just juicy. Juice is literally falling and dripping from the sides. It was like, it was perfect. I could not believe it. And I don't even like white meat. And I was like, hey, I think this is awesome. So the, tur- the turkey came out fantastic. Um, we had bread stuffing, regular bread stuffing from the bird. We also had the cornbread stuffing. Uh, We used all of the drippings and stuff from the turkey to actually make proper turkey gravy. And that turned out fantastic. We had the mashed potatoes. We had the green bean casserole. uh, We, of course, had rolls and the cranberry sauce and uh, sweet potato pie, broccoli, uh, corn. And I, good Lord, I can't think of whatever else we had so so when it comes down to it you weren't one of those poor fucks out there that just got stuck eating ham (laughs) exactly exactly my dad actually my dad uh was not able to come after all that i know i talked a little bit about last week so when we were talking on thanksgiving day he had prepared himself he was readying himself rather for his thanksgiving meal which was a like a 12 ounce freaking filet mignon that he had bought a full strap of filet and then carved it himself so that, and then he has a food saver. Oh, those food savers are amazing. If you don't have one, you should get one. And so he was able to use the food saver to vacuum seal the rest and put, put them into the freezer. And so He's getting his own, you know, hand-carved filet mignon. That's what he did for his Thanksgiving. Ooh. So he wasn't he wasn't upset at all. So, so since was... you're the one who who cut the turkey, carved the turkey, and mm-hmm. and put it on the plate, and I guess I assume that you pass that plate on, and the plate goes on to the next uh, next finely well dressed uh, family member next to them oh no this was pretty we we, we were pretty casual and so you, you don't wear like the um, knitted sweater like i was totally no. picturing you in a knitted red <laughs> possibly green sweater with your hair combed back and no wearing no black shoes. We, I, I mean we i i did lead the family in the prayer but i mean you've been to my house so you've seen the layout we had 16 people we couldn't fit them all at one table so we actually had the kids table then we had the adolescence table for our 15-year-olds and whatnot. And then we had the adults at the main table there. So what we did was in the kitchen, we set up the serving line. So you would start with the turkey and then wrap around and get all your fixings and stuff. And then work your way out to the table. And then the kids had their, uh, in the little dining, in the breakfast nook, 
the kids had their their meal there and then we set up an, an additional table where i don't know if you saw on facebook where my christmas tree is mm-hmm. now we we asked that area was where we put the adolescence at so by 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 adolescence do you mean recovered drug addicts in your family yes them too <laughs> yes them too so um well that's lovely yeah so we had all kind of set up like that cool well i did you uh oven cook your your turkey or did you throw it on the I did. boy i did no i i take literally i take an entire stick of butter and after after having you know taken the turkey out of the fridge where it has been defrosting for six and a half days i then uh make sure it's been wiped thoroughly down get all the last any little remaining little feather pieces uh that may have been missed um clearly obviously you know you take out the guts and the the gut bag and the neck and all that good stuff i love how the neck looks like a severed penis whenever you pull it out (laughs) by the way it's if you're willing to cook it it's actually really good it's just one of those things that people generally don't eat and it's a shame because it's really quite good i just like it as is and just have it sit in my my cup of eggnog just kind of like a candy cane kind of draped over the side mm, that's that's (laughs) totally safe and and so then I uh, take a, and so I take an entire stick of butter and I get the bottom of it and I don't do a whole lot of butter on the bottom because clearly it's going to be dripping and all that kind of stuff and then we do some salt and some pepper and after I've rubbed the bottom with the butter I then hit the, hit it with salt and pepper and rub that into the skin and then a little bit more butter. And a little more salt and pepper. And then we do the same thing with the top. And just basically you rub that whole stick of butter in there. And then the salt and pepper. And you rub all that in. And then you salt, you know, more butter and then salt and pepper that. And then we do the bread stuffing. The stuffing gets extra seasonings with sage and salt. Some extra poultry seasoning, that kind of stuff. Mix all that all together with on- sautéed onions, butter, chicken broth, uh, celery, if that's your if that's your bag. And then... You stuff that fucking turkey all the way till it can't hold anymore, and then you. Take <laughs> that a, is provocative uh, sounding. Yeah, stuff and then you take that a, turkey a until it can't hold anymore. Big old piece of foil, and you put the foil as kind of like a tent. You don't seal the turkey, but you put it as kind of a tent, um, and then you shove that in the oven. And the last thirty to forty-five minutes of cooking, you come in and you yank the the foil off and you let it brown properly and. Check your temperature, pull it out. It sounds like you're talking about, like, sex. The tent <laughs> being the, the dome. Let it brown in the <laughs> oven a bit until you're ready to, you know, it's ready to come out. And So, I, now, with, I, I know we're running a little bit late, but does anything ever awkward happening or ever happen to you or your family members? Like, are, are, are there any conversations that get brought up around the dinner table? For example, uh, cereal. Not cereal, but Syria or any politics or religious talks or anything um, like that? Sometimes. I mean, nothing that really ever gets out of hand or people that, you know, whenever it gets like uh, people like start yelling or anything like that. Or it gets kind of like where someone says something and everybody else is kind of like, ooh, awkward silence. Because uh, that usually when, when those kinds of hap- happenings occur, it's usually at the dessert portion of the dinner. And I mean, you can't, there's just something about pumpkin pie, pumpkin spice cupcakes, uh, pecan pie, cherry cobbler, 
and pumpkin cheesecake with a salted caramel. You don't fuck that up. You don't fuck that up with like, you know, awkward talkings. So, no, nah, we were good, man. We're good. Your dinner so far, the menu of it sounds like the menu of a golden corral. But a very nice golden corral. Wow, I kind of am butthurt about that a little bit. No, no, I I mean I mean I'm talking about variety. <laughs> I'm and I'm not talking about quality. I'm talking about variety <laughs> in a good way. And I'm saying that because I'm a little bit jealous because I love the cobblers and all that good stuff. But anyways, um, if that wasn't awkward enough, something that is awkward for me is not necessarily politics that gets brought up around the Thanksgiving dinner table, but it's the conversations that gets uh, that, that, that kind of come up while you are in the process of basting your turkey and what was going on, I was in the kitchen, and my significant other, my significant other's mother, and my significant uh, 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 other's sister were all in the kitchen. And my significant, significant other's mother, you know, cut the slit into the turkey, and so she had the butter and the, and the garlic or whatever the hell it was, and the lemon, and kind of like doing the rub down, the, the within the skin rub down of the turkey. And her hands, she is about mid-arm deep into this turkey when her daughter not my significant other but my significant other's sister says this and she is married and this is i am in no this is not in any way how she sounds but i'm just going to do it anyway she just walks up to her mother and says so mom um i now don't react to this what i'm about to tell you okay and the mother is like oh okay just promise me you will not react at all but i just want to tell you this Oh, okay, okay. So, my significant husband and I are planning on having a kid. We're thinking about it. Now, don't, just remember, don't react. I don't want to see any tears coming down your face. And she's saying this while her mother is arm deep into a turkey filled with garlic or whatever and butter and lemon and all that stuff. And as she is seeing this, I can see her hands protruding like, pulling out of, you know, going through the turkey skin. And it looks like her hands are about to bust out of that turkey because of all the joy and excitement of possibly having a grandchild in the near future might actually come to fruition. I I don't know. To me, it was awkward. Uh, Just mental picture, think about it. And if it's awkward, I succeeded with that. If not, then I wasted a good minute and a half. (laughs) Well, I guess only time will tell. So, now that we have wasted 15 and a half minutes of these good people's time, uh, should we do our email check real quick? We shall. Or we must. All right. Checking the email inbox where you too can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. I see that we have a new Twitter follower. Uh, let's see here. At Vengeful Jedi. That's pretty fun. Uh, we have a follower by the name of Clint Thiel. And he's he's also, look, our I guess our incestual podcasting circle is expanding yet again. Uh, so he is the host of the Geek Dig podcast. And uh, also a green up gaming podcast look wow i thought i was cool with just a movie podcast this guy's got like two podcasts uh he says he's a gamer netflix binge watcher and geek 
out of Chicago. So, yeah, that looks like fun. Thank you, Clint, for the follow. You too can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. And then we, I've got two really weird emails here, both from our friend, that fracking cat. One is uh, from Friday, but it says Friday email 1227-2015. And he says, hi. And that's it, cat. So I replied, greetings, friendly cat, from next month. Tell me what did I get for Christmas? And I haven't gotten a reply yet. I then get another email here that is in our email box, and it says, Catterday email, 11-28-2015. And all this one says is monkeys. That's all, it, that's all it says. So I replied, if it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. Even if it has a monkey kind of shape. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. It's an ape. So that's what our email box looks like right now. Please, for the love of God, send us some emails so that I don't have to ever do this again. Uh, and that's that. That's it. Um, riveting. This is riveting podcasting. <laughs> Fuck NPR. Listen to us. <laughs> Yeah, we're about one step away from doing, like, Family Feud or something. <laughs> oh, burn, rub, apply cream. Oh, Mr. man. You know... We love our friends over at We Are Not Here to Please You. <laughs> Remember when I but said that I, I listened to last week's episode? episode? Huh? Was this proof I listened to last week's episode? See, guys? I listen to you guys. What's up now? Anyway. All right. So that is our email. And I guess now we can just go to the news. Am I correct, sir? Please. Here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up from me here, we got, let's see here. I've got two very, very simple and quick announcements here. Uh, first up there, we've got comicbook.com by way of Joe Comic Book. Fantastic Four sequel removed from Fox's release schedule. Yes, you heard that correctly, folks. Despite Fox's initial insistence that the Fantastic Four sequel was moving forward despite the box office failure of the first film, Fox has now officially removed the Fantastic Four sequel from their release schedule. Fantastic Four 2 was originally scheduled for a June 9th, 2017 release, even before the first film hit theaters. With virtually all superhero movies performing well at the box office recently, Fox probably felt confident at the time that Fantastic Four would follow suit. However, Fantastic Four wound up being the rare superhero movie flop. Fantastic Four only grossed $56 million domestically and $167 million worldwide on a production budget of $120 million. Yeah. Um, now, it, it, this is a very short article, so it concludes by saying it is unclear if Fox removing Fantastic Four 2 from their schedule means the film is indefinitely canceled or if it will be rescheduled for a later date to allow more time to Fox to allow more time for Fox to plan a strategy for what comes next. Um, and I, I think they're just, yeah, quietly removed. That you're, We're not going to see anything. I'm sure that... They will just try and keep this property from Marvel again. So in seven years, we'll probably see another stupid 
Fantastic Four movie. Uh, the other quick announcement here from Entertainment Weekly uh, by way of Nick Romano. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence says she'll keep working with David O. Russell until he dies. Yes, Joy marks the third time Jennifer Lawrence and David O. Russell have worked together, but she says it won't be their last. Quote, I'll do anything with you until you die, end quote, Lawrence told Russell Saturday during a Q&A that followed the first screening of their latest collaboration, adding, quote, it's sweet and fucked up, end quote. <laughs> um, well, I think that's, I think that's neat that you know clearly someone is very happy to be working with a director and it seems that now with um silver linings playbook and oh good lord american hustle and now joy that david o russell does like to use this particular lineup whenever he can because it's not just about jennifer lawrence we've also got robert de niro and bradley cooper uh going in to joy and there have been in all those movies as well i think uh i think it's really cool i don't know if that kind of chemistry can last over you know so many pictures but what do you think tim uh anything to say about either jennifer lawrence's wanting to forever team up with david russell and or the fantastic four being removed well, I like Jennifer Lawrence in David O. Russell films because so far they've all been really good, and I'm really looking forward to Joy. I think that'll, uh, hopefully, that'll be another great one for the duo. Um, uh, and Fantastic Four, I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of us were expecting this to happen. Like I said, whenever we were reviewing it, I paid money two or three times, I think two times to go see this movie at the theater, and I fell asleep both times, and the movie is maybe a little over 90 minutes long. It was god-awful. <laughs> and, yeah, I read somewhere that it would be more interesting if they just made a documentary of the making of the movie, and that would probably do even better. So, hopefully that will happen. Right on. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, first off, I'm going to do a one-two punch with movie news from Ford's, Ford's, Forbes Media and Entertainment. Lionsgate responds to Gods of Egypt whitewashing controversy. This is written by Scott Mendelson. And I don't know if any of you guys out there have seen the trailer for Gods of Egypt. When I went to go see the uh, Hunger Games... This was a trailer that was attached to the beginning of the film. And I'm particularly looking forward to it due to its director, that director being Alex Poyas, who did The Crow and, uh, and, and Dark City. He also did iRobot and uh, Nicolas Cage's, I think, underrated movie, Knowing. And he's a very stylistic director. And a lot of people, especially looking at the movie's promo posters... The first thing a lot of us notice how colorful it is and how it looks like the color the cover of a of a young teen girl book, a young adult novel like from 1993 or something like that. But another thing that people notice, especially when they watch the trailer, is how many white people are in the movie. Uh, those from, I don't know if there's any, uh, I'm sure there's Americans in it, but there is definitely those from the UK, whites from the UK in it. Um, and I'm going to read from this article here again from Forbes.com. As the headline states, Lionsgate Entertainment has released an official statement in response to criticisms 
regarding the casting choices of Alex Proyas's Gods of Egypt. As I wrote when the trailer dropped, the previously released character posters confirmed, much to the char- uh, much to the charge of the internet, or jargon of the internet, that Gods of Egypt is a period piece fantasy adventure based in Egypt, but most of the main characters are white. The film is yet another movie based in an African continent filled with Australian, Swedish, English, and French actors playing would-be Egyptian humans and gods. Well, Lionsgate seems to have heard the controversy regarding the so-called whitewashing, and has shared their official statement with me. Alex Proyas says this, quote, The process of casting a movie has many complicated variables, but it is clear that our casting choices should have been more diverse. I sincerely apologize to those who are offended by the decisions we made. End quote. Lionsgate says, quote, We recognize that it is our responsibility to help ensure that casting decisions reflect the diversity and culture of the time periods portrayed. In this instance, we fail to live up to our own standards of sensitivity and diversity, for which we sincerely apologize. Lionsgate is deeply committed to making films that reflect the diversity of our audiences. We have, can, and will continue to do better. End quote. And on a side note, this is coming after the whitewashing, uh, the whitewashing complaints that, uh, what was it called? Ex- Exodus? Gods of Ex- uh, Shit, I don't remember what it was called. It was the Ridley Scott movie with Jeremy Renner and Christian Bell, the retelling of uh, basically the Ten Commandments. Uh, but the article the article does continue for what it's worth this is somewhat uh this is a somewhat different response to this sort of thing that we've seen in the past be it Ridley Scott rather honestly admitting that casting a bunch of white actors was critical to getting international funding for 20th century foxes exodus or joe wright claiming rooney mara as tiger lily in warner brothers time warner inks pan was merely one of an otherwise multicultural group of warriors the usual response is kind is a kind of justification, with the caveat that, quote, it's my film and I can do what I want, end quote, is a perfectly understandable defense. And with the understanding that admitting error on an already in-production film doesn't undo the original subject of discontent, it's a little refreshing to see the retrospect uh, it's a little refreshing to see the respected parties just offer a mea culpa. However, it's not like this reaction should have been a total surprise as Daily Life was calling this film out back in April of 2014. Um, and the article goes on from there. Matt, what do you, what do you think? Um, do you think this is a problem with cinema? Do you think uh, studios, they do need to be more, uh, more, 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 paying more attention to this sort of thing? Or do you think it's okay to have a couple white actors playing this guys, but maybe fill out the roles with those that would better fit those type of characters? Okay, so here's the thing. We we kind of established a formula back in the day with the tits and togas flicks and stuff where you you get you you get the names that are going to put butts in seats and um this in no way shape or form uh is trying to link what's happening today with racism and prejudices and stuff like that that occurred 50 and 60 years ago and plus and on and on 
But where back then people were being excluded solely because of race and you did not try and promote other races. So you would naturally put the white people in there. Um, it was just so striking when you would put someone who was clearly not white. So let's take a look at Ten Commandments, right? You've got ultra white uh, Charlton Heston and, um, oh, good Lord. Help me. What's his name? Bald guy, King and I. Yule Brenner. Thank you, Jesus. So you've got Yule Brenner. These guys aren't supposed to be brothers, per se, uh, in terms of blood relation, but they are supposed to be significantly more closely related, even in stature and physical being and color of skin, than they clearly are on camera. So nowadays so we transpose that to nowadays and the thing is is that when you get these guys who are pretty blatantly white in these lead characters you there's no way you're going to believe that they're going to be related to people who don't look like them even when we're dealing with people not necessarily who you know moses ramsey's kind of thing but just in general like well wait a minute these people don't look anything alike and it just kind of shatters that illusion so you've got that playing into it, plus you've got the whole, you need names people know to put, you know, the butts in the seats. And then it's kind of like, well, now there's nobody left to actually cast who is of the proper nationality. So maybe they should just back off the huge budget things and use these kinds of movies as amazing platforms to bring up more international talent. And it does two things. One, it gets us more names that are worth knowing. And two, uh, exposes the U.S. audience to uh, an international style of platform of movie making, which is more money nationwide, or I'm sorry, worldwide, because it's an actual multinational cast. So... Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily that it's being it's it's a blatant racism or it's blatantly trying to exclude anyone based on anything else other than they've inadvertently created this formula that doesn't allow for anything and then they throw big budgets at it that confuses the issue muddles the issue even more. So, yeah. Sorry, that was probably way longer of an explanation than you were looking for. No, it it works. It definitely works. Um, next up, really quick, Peter Jackson explains why the Hobbit movies are such a huge mess. This is provided to us by SlashFilm.com. This here is written by Jacob Hall. This is something that actually came out a week or so ago, probably by the time this episode gets released a week and a half ago. Um, and the article says this, I think it's pretty interesting. Even the most ardent defenders of Peter Jackson's three-film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit acknowledge that none of them come close to matching the highs of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Something about them just feels off from frame one, like something important is missing. Whatever spark made the first trilogy such magical experience is missing here. And it's now apparent that no one knows this more than Jackson himself. In a new special feature on the newly released extended edition of The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies, the Oscar-winning filmmaker is completely honest about his experience on the films and how a rushed schedule snapped his spirits. 
or it sapped his spirits, excuse me, you will never see a filmmaker look more tired, lost, and despondent than you will here. It's genuinely heartbreaking. Um, and they posted a video here that was brought to their attention by The Guardian. You can find it on YouTube. It's a six-minute, 38-minute video, and it's entitled The Problem with the Battle of Five Armies. But the article does continue. The short version... When Jackson took over the Hobbit films from original director Gilmero del Toro, the schedule was not adjusted. He was not granted the amount of time necessary to storyboard and redesign the world to his specifications. He was behind from day one and spent every other day sprinting to play catch-up. Quote, I don't know what the hell I was doing, end quote, Jackson admits. He recalls having to call for extended lunch hours just so he could figure out how to approach a scene. Compare this to the literal years of pre-production he had on The Lord of the Rings. A choice quote from Peter Jackson himself. Quote, Because Gilmero del Toro had to leave and I jumped in and took over, we didn't wind the clock back a year and a half and give me a year and a half prep to design the movie, which was different to what he was doing. It was impossible. And as a result of it being impossible, I just started shooting the movie with... Most of it not prepped at all. You're going on to set and you're whining, uh, and you're weaning, and you're winging it. Excuse me. You've got these massively complicated scenes, no storyboards, and you're making it up there and then on the spot. And he goes on to say, quote, I spent most of The Hobbit feeling like I was not on top of it. Even from a script point of view, Fran Walsh, Philippa Bowens, and I hadn't got the entire script written to our satisfaction. So that was a very high-pressure situation. End all quotes there. End all of uh, Jackson's quotes and uh, everything uh, about the article. You know, I one thing I don't understand, I know all these movies, it, it costs a studio a whole lot of money. And... I know going into it, New Line and all these uh, Warner Brothers, they knew that this movie would, the, all these movies would make a ton of money due to its fan base. But what the Lord of the Rings trilogy has over the Hobbit trilogy, most definitely, is not just that they're better movies, but they have higher replay value, or uh, high replay value. So 20 years from now, 30 years from now. 50 years from now, people will go back and rewatch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I'm sure will thoroughly enjoy it. I think it would age significantly better. The problem with The Hobbit, it's all special effects, and it's all really shitty blue screen, and it relies so much on special effects, again, because of what I just said or read, they didn't have a story and a script firmly intact beforehand. So overall, this movie will lose money. It will not make as much money as the Lord of the Rings trilogy will. So my question is, why not push this movie back? Why not push production back a little bit? Bite the bullet. Lose the, you know, tens of millions of dollars that, it, that the studio would have lost. And plan on making a better movie. I think at the end that would have been all, that that would be, that that would have been well worth it because I would have rather have seen a really good movie that flopped. Then again, it's easy for me, an audience member, to say this. I don't, you know, I'm not the one that is going to lose the money. But I would feel more proud. I would be more proud of a movie that was great, that didn't do well, than a movie that did well 
during his box office run, but it was ultimate shit and will just be swept under the rug, you know, uh, just down the road, you know. But Matt, what do you think? Do you have any comments, questions, concerns about this? Do you agree with me? Uh, actually, I watched this video, I guess, last week or the week before, and um, it's really, it, it really is an interesting video that kind of goes into the why of it, and it's kind of sad. Even when Guillermo del Toro doesn't strike, he still strikes again. Um, I, uh, I mean, honestly, I feel, I feel bad for the guy, truly that he was put into that situation and I am glad that he persevered and was able to create the Hobbit product that we got um, in terms of just, I'm glad that he was you know able to get it done. But I think if anything, that should have been the screaming thing right there that said, don't make three movies, don't make three movies, don't make three movies. I mean, um, I, I, yeah. So, um, as much as I feel bad for him, uh, it's it doesn't change the fact that the product itself was not good overall. Uh, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but it was, as a package, unnecessary. And I don't think we'll see anything more of it at this point, so whatever. That's And that's all I have to say about that. And there you go. All right. Well, as we're there, I'm just going to save the rest of my movie news for some other time, I guess. Uh, So we will go ahead and move into... Furry Square! This time on Three Squared, we are going to be talking about our favorite movies. Actually, not our favorites. Just movies that were better than the book. Now, I am a huge fan of the books versus the movies thing. I know you've heard me go on ad infinitum about it. But rarely. It It is possible, though highly unlikely, that occasionally... There are movies that are better than the book. And I did not think it was possible up until about 1995 uh, when I read for my fiction class, or I guess maybe it was 94, I don't remember, 94, 95. I had to remember, uh, for my senior fiction class in high school, I had to read The Natural. This novel comes from 1952. And... When I read this novel, I was so invested into the character and everything, and I and I was so looking forward to how you know how this play, was going to play out because the drama it was lots of tension and everything in this. And then, of course, the the book ends, and you're like, "What? I cannot believe this shit!" I literally in my life had never wanted to throw a book at somebody as much as I wanted to throw this book at my fiction teacher. And so then, because he wanted to show how fiction can shift from one medium to another, we had to watch The Natural, the movie, after we had finished reading the book. And so we have Bernard Malamud, um, who wrote the book, and then 
we have the Barry Levinson directed Robert Redford starring Phil. Now, um, you we go through the we go through the movie, and the movie stays faithful to the book, even if it's not necessarily sticking a hundred percent close, you know, a hundred percent onto the book as movies are wont to do. But then the ending occurs. And that ending of the movie is not the ending of the book. And the ending of the movie makes the experience fulfilling and happy. And so the 1984 movie, The Natural, is was the first time I ever found out that a movie could be better than the book. So there you go. So you got that. We move into Misery. Uh, of course, most everyone is familiar with this. This is probably um, one of Stephen King's best-known books that were turned into movies, and probably the penultimate performance of Kathy Bates, definitely the landmark performance that put her on everybody's radar, as the ultimate fan. And the the book... What, uh, the book, the thing with the book is that Stephen King, he can be very, as a writer, he's painting a mental picture for you. And in a lot of cases, he's painting an overtly vivid picture. And while it's not necessary to have that picture, I guess it still made the book provocative. It still made the book interesting. Well, what they do in the movie is they tone down a lot of that violence and instead turn it into psychological thriller. And I think that made all the difference in the world. Now, the book from 1987 that Stephen King wrote is still good. It's still a really good book. Um, And I would definitely recommend that, especially if you are a burgeoning fan of Stephen King, or maybe, hey, just go and give it a good reread. But the film totally gives it a completely different vibe and i think it was able to take by shifting the violence to the psychological aspect i think it made it more intense than the book was and the book is definitely nothing to sniff at so misery from 1990 becomes my second time that i can see that now uh i i forrest gump is my third choice. The novel came out in 1986. The film, of course, uh, was 1994. And while everybody definitely um, loves the, the the movie, and I did too, and I watched it, it wasn't until quite a few years later that I ever actually went back and read the book. And I got to tell you, the book is vastly, vastly different than the film. Uh, there are so few things from the book that actually even make it into the movie. It's a wonder that they even were able to call it Forrest Gump. Now, the reason why I felt that the movie did a better job is that while I think Winston Groom, who wrote the book, uh, definitely has a great story... It's almost as if it's trying it's almost as if the book is purposely trying to 
smack you in the face with its content. And instead of telling this heartwarming story that just touches on all these major um, uh, touchstones, if you will, from the 20th century, the 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 book is more like, yep, this is what happened, and here's how I did it, and it doesn't give, and I don't give a flying fuck. I mean, because Forrest Gump curses. Uh, he does he does a lot of things differently it's almost like a completely different characterization it's like a darker satirical version of what you see in the movie even though clearly the book came first and it just creates a whole different tone that's just not as uplifting as the movie that made everybody want to go and read the book in the first place so i found that just the general tone of the film was just far superior to the book. The book isn't terrible by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know that I would go back and read it again, but I did give it the one read, and it is, it is, I would have to say, probably something worth reading once. Uh, so my choices are The Natural from 1984. Its novel was from 1952. Misery from 1990. Its novel was from 1987. And Forrest Gump from 1994. And its novel was from 1986. What do you got there, Tim? Alrighty. So I have a confession. I I haven't read a lot of books as of late that were eventually turned into movies, uh, let alone books that were actually better, uh, or excuse me, movies that were better than the books. Um, because I, 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 I don't know why, <laughs> but I guess I just, I, I, I come to realize that I read too much historical, uh, nonfiction than, uh, than I guess books that I probably should have been reading. So my choices are three stories that are either super throwing in the towel or they're obviously movies slash books that I've seen or read when I was in either junior high school or high school. <laughs> so hopefully maybe somebody out there can relate to any of these three movies. But first off, I'm pretty sure all of you can relate to Harper E. Lee's book from 1960, which eventually got turned into a movie in 1962 entitled To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, that movie there, we all know the story about, uh, you know, the girl, Scout, the dad, um, I'm completely blanking on Atticus Finch, my bad, uh, in Atticus Finch and the relationship with her father and, uh, and, and the whole turn of race relations at that time. Uh, it was a very powerful book when it came out. Um, however, with a lot of movies that were more successful, at least in my eye, whether it be entertaining or just overall better than the book, one thing that books have, or one thing that movies have that books do not have, are the powerful performances. And Gregory Peck's performance of Atticus Finch blows the character out of the water. It is impossible to have read that book in 1960 and it could have, ima it could have imagined the power of Atticus Finch uh, or the potential of the power, the power potential of Atticus Finch. I think that makes sense. Sure, I'll go with it. Um, and I feel comfortable saying that because when I read the book 
at the time. I didn't see, I have not seen the movie. In fact, I really didn't know anything about the movie other than it was older and I knew a lot of older people that really liked it. (laughs) Um, And when I did see it, I saw it after I read the book. thought the book was good, but at the time a little boring. But then when I saw the movie, powerhouse, powerhouse performances. At the time, it was my first Gregory Peck film, uh, especially my first Rosemary Murphy film. And it, it's it's great. It's a perfect, perfect movie. It's a movie that has everything kind of mixed up in it. Not mixed up in it, but it has everything that you love about movies in it. It has uh, great performances. It has a great father-daughter uh, daughter's uh, element to the film. On top of that, it also gives you hope about race in America at that time. Because again, the movie did come out in 1962. So all that was very prominent. And especially the idea of a young girl being friendly with an African-American child. Or befriending an older uh, African-American boy or guy. So that was all very taboo at the time. Even with Sidney Poitier coming out and being a big uh, a big movie star himself, and as well as other uh, uh, sports players as well becoming uh, big stars themselves, this was still quite taboo. Uh, especially with the movie winning <laughs> three Oscars, three Oscars. It was one of the best movies of 1962 and 1963. So yes, To Kill a Mockingbird is my first movie. That was indeed my... Throwing in the towel movie. (laughs) Uh, My second movie is a little bit more obscure because it is based on a short story that I read in, I think I was in ninth grade or so. So at the very start of junior high or or at the very start of high school or might have been at the tail end of junior high. I can't remember. Uh, But it was a 1996 movie based on a 1949 short story called The Lottery. Uh, The short story of the lottery was written by Shirley Jackson, and it was first published in, it was either like in a magazine or in a newspaper, I can't really remember. But it's it's a very, uh, it it was critically bashed, the book was, um, because the, the, the story is super duper dark. Think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where... If you went and saw that movie in the 50s, right when it came out, you would have thought, oh, this is just a fun horror movie that, you know, at the at the tail end, the last 30 seconds of uh, at the end of the movie, there's a little bit of closure to it, but it's still awfully disturbing. This movie is just kind of disturbing. You get that little glimpse of hope for the characters, but then it doesn't really work out. It's always great when you read something. And it just ends with the lead character that you're trying to root for beg for life as they're getting killed, pretty much. And that is pretty much, the that's basically the lottery. It's very much like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but more depressing. It's about uh, this town that that is very rooted in a tradition of something that they call a lottery. But the lottery isn't just a regular lottery. I mean, it is a lottery in the sense of your name goes into like a hat and they pull out your name and you don't win something that is pleasing. You win something that is God awful. That would be getting stoned to death and not the great stoning to death 
or stoned to death, which would involve some marijuana or so. But no, I'm talking about actual stones, sharp stones, a, a horrible, painful death that is... Is, is 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 awfully depressing when you think about it. I mean, how pissed off would you have to be at somebody to literally pick up rocks, multiple rocks, and throw them at somebody? And they're, you know, they can scream and yell and plead for their life as you're throwing, you know, it's, it's pretty demented. And so that is the basic setup of the story, is the lottery. Now, the movie, which stars Carrie Russell, she's a popular name, and uh, Carrie Russell, Stephen Root, Dan Cortez, William Daniels, Veronica Cartwright. This was actually a made-for-TV movie that came out in 1996, and I'm actually surprised it took them this long to really make this, uh, to make an ad- uh, adaption of this of this story, because it's a really, really good story. But like I said, in 1949, when the short story came out, it didn't do all that great. With critics, or uh, critics really didn't like it because of its subject matter. And the same can be said with the TV movie. I don't think people were really looking forward to turning on Lifetime, or whatever TV channel it came on, and expecting this this type of thing to happen. Especially when you're used to watching stuff on TV that's supposed to be uplifting, or you happen to have accidentally watched My Babysitter's Dead, or that one with... Uh, with with Melanie Griffith, where her child gets kidnapped, and oh god, that's depressing. But even that kind of has a happy ending, I think, or maybe her child dies. I really don't remember, but it's based on a true story, so I guess it would have to have somewhat of a happy closure-ish ending. I don't know, but this one does not. It does kind of stray away from the story a bit, the short story a bit, but it's basically the same old depressing mess of getting stoned to death. Now, my third and final film that I'm kind of regretting to have mentioned it because I am starting to remember the movie from when I did watch it again, another one from either elementary school or junior high school. It did come out uh, in 1999, um, but I do now remember a 1954 animated version of this film. And the book I'm talking about is George Orwell's 1945 story, Animal Farm. Yes, that is right, Animal Farm. Animal Farm is indeed the Orwellian allegorical story by George Orwell, reflecting events that led up to the Russian, the 1917 Russian Revolution, um, and it as well as the uh, Stalin-led Soviet Union era, uh, era as well. And this is all an allegory because the characters, they're not really Stalin and, you know, they're not like the humans or anything. They are portrayed by pigs and some humans as well. Uh, but pigs and other uh, and other animals like cows, hens, cats, you know, a sheep, you know, puppies, horses, if I didn't already say horses. But it's blatant. It's as blatant as can be. And it is fucking brilliant, the story is. Um, for example, uh, the lead pig here is Old Major, and he is supposed to be an allegorical, uh, an allegorical combination of Karl Marx, as well as Lenin himself. Uh, the pig Napoleon is an allegory of, um, of, 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 of Joseph Stalin. Snowball is supposed to be Leon Trotsky. Uh, and the list goes on, and then you have the humans. Uh, one of them is Mr. Jones, and he was a uh, is an allegorical representation of 
uh, Adolf Hitler. No, I'm sorry, that's not Mr. Jones. It's Mr. Fred Frederick is the allegorical representation of Adolf Hitler. Um, so yeah, uh, the 1954 version is an animated film that was nominated uh, for a BAFTA, a BAFTA for Best Animated Feature. But the 1999 version was all puppets. And I remember in L- in junior high, elementary, junior high, I guess it was junior high, yeah, junior high school, watching this and I thought, shit, man, this movie totally ba- uh, blows Babe Pig in the City out of the water. Why? Because the movie is too dark for kids and those who are old enough who have read the book probably wouldn't have dug the movie as much as I did at the time, I was probably too old at heart to have com- been completely freaked out by the movie uh, because it was well shot, it was well done, the CGI was good, the puppetry was good. And I think when it just came down to it, I loved the story. I loved the allegoricalness to it all. Um, we, Of course, we read the books before we watched the movies, and the book is was very entertaining, but it was fun actually seeing this on the screen, it being played out in front of me, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, visually, I guess. So I guess going back, um, I didn't see the 1954 version, but according to Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, it is significantly better, apparently, critic-wise to the puppet version of the film. But do check it out. I'm actually hoping, I am hoping somebody out there in podcast land, you SLS Cast fans, 11,000 of you, or, you know, maybe not all you 11,000 send in mail, but please let me know how wrong I am. Because, again, as I'm going, as I'm talking through this, I'm, I'm sincerely regretting everything that I just said. But if there's one of you out there that might agree, and who did like the puppet version of Animal Farm, do let us know. But yes, uh, the three films that I regretfully say are better than their books from 1962, To Kill a Mockingbird, from 1996, The Lottery, and from 1999, the puppet version of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Right on, right on. Okay, well, next week we are going to be doing a discussions uh, piece uh, where we are going to talk about avclub.com, the AV Club's article by Alexander Hulls. Fifteen years ago, Unbreakable became the superhero movie we need now. So we're going to definitely go over that. So feel free to look that up over there at avclub.com and read it so that you'll have a idea of what we're talking about. And with nothing else, I think it is now time for the movies. That's right, folks. And this week's movies are The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, Spotlight, and The 33. So, Tim, where would you like to start, sir? How about Spotlight? All right. Spotlight, 2015 American drama film directed by Thomas McCarthy, written by McCarthy and Josh Singer. Uh, it stars Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Lee Shriver, John Stanley, and Stanley Tucci. 
And the vast bulk of those people play uh, the Spotlight Team. That's the Boston Globe Spotlight Team. They're actually the oldest continually, continuously operating newspaper investigative unit in the United States. And this is specifically their uh, story on how they actually uncovered the child abuse uh, that was pervasive in Roman Catholic churches in Massachusetts, as well as its ongoing cover-up by the Boston Archdiocese. Um, all right, so this is definitely a movie that I think was done more for Oscar bait than because it was necessarily going to be a fantastic movie. That being said, it is a hugely, hugely well-received film and definitely very, very, very well acted. My problem with this film, and, it's, and this is the only major issue that I have with this film, and it costed a star, okay, a full star, is that while I certainly understand that dramatic license needs to be uh, taken in certain aspects, and that sometimes characters need to be um, amalgams of different, you know, amalgamations of, of different real life people or whatever, just to, you know, keep your narrative going. There were several instances that they point blank made actual people look totally different than they did in real life, than their real life counterparts. And, um, the biggest one, and this is actually something that has been that has hit the news since this movie came out, is the portrayal of Jack Dunn. They show Jack Dunn in the film play, uh, basically being this kind of non-caring asshole, when in fact he really did care and went to bat to try and figure out what the fuck was actually going on. And this isn't, Jack Dunn is not the only uh instance where this occurs and i again i understand that dramatic license needs to be taken but this particular situation is already bad enough in real life as it is it doesn't need to be made worse by people who aren't smart enough to go uh not even necessarily that aren't smart enough but just simply don't care enough to actually go and look up their actual facts of what really transpired they're just gonna bank on this movie actually knowing what it is which is just completely foolish so maybe they aren't smart enough. I don't know. Um, and because of that, I docked it a star. However, the acting is really good. Uh, clearly, the story in and of itself that it's trying to tell is, you know, obviously very thrilling and everything. Um, kind of, it's very kind of reminiscent of The Insider, the old Russell Crowe film from the late 90s. And I, I mean, I definitely dug the feel of everything cinematography music all that stuff is really well done i just did not like um some of the characterizations that they pulled on these people because they kept them with their real life counterparts names so four stars out of five definitely check it out what do you got there tim super strong movie very strong movie with a very strong ensemble uh, ensemble class <laughs> ensemble cast all around, all around, everybody was great. Um, a lot of cool nuances and character mannerisms that totally work, especially Mark Ruffalo uh, and the little, not, I guess not the little bit that you see um, 
Oh shit, I'm blinking on his name. The guy who comes in to take over the newspaper. Um, oh my god. Just had to, to and you and I totally had to kill down all that information and close that tab. So I can't, I can't even save you. Hang on. <laughs> Ooh. Um, let's see here. Give me your first name. I'll know. The, I'll know the second name. Let's see here. Hang on. Uh, do, do. First name of the actor or first name of the character? Actor. We've got Matt. Uh, okay, Brian Darcy James. No, 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 no. The guy who comes in to take over the Boston Herald. The the actor. Uh, God damn it! Hang on. Uh, Sharon McFarlane. No, 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 no. Well, she was the editor. Hang on. I'm literally going through the fucking cast here. He was he was uh, Sabretooth in Wolverine. I know that's a really shitty movie. To, oh, Leave Schreiber. Yeah, Leave Schreiber. God damn there it. There we go. Thank you. Yes. Uh, even with Lee Schreiber, uh, his characteristics, his performance was—it was—it's great. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and the movie is—it's a very strong story because it's a true story that is quite compelling, and, and and it's strong because the writing is strong as well. And the movie itself is very much like uh, like other movies that are that are kind of like this, like All the President's Men, and like what Matt mentioned, The Insider from the nineties. Like movies like these, there's no need for fancy camera tricks or other suave aesthetics, you know, like crazy music, you know, fancy editing or anything like this. This is this is literally, you know, like you cut to the next scene, you cut to the next shot, you cut to maybe one more shot, and then you then it's the next scene, and more dialogue and more dialogue, and then maybe. Maybe maybe a voiceover while somebody's in a car, you know, driving away, you know. It, it's just, there's not a lot of music, there's not a lot of crazy cutting, and there's, there's a lot of dialogue. And that's good because, for the most part, the screenplay is a very strong screenplay, and the dialogue is very entertaining, and it does a good job with progressing the story along. However, with movies like these... They require a build-up to the ending, you know, the final kicker, you know, the success of what all these people are trying to accomplish. Very much like The Insider and All the President's Men. With All the President's Men especially, it, you know, you, you, knew, you knew what was at stake. And those stakes were just rising as the movie went on until the whammy moment at the end. The feeling of relief, the feeling of accomplishment especially. And I think this is mostly what this movie was lacking, is that you understood what the stakes were, but once you reach the top, where are you going to go? And I understand that they were following the story, uh, the, the, true, the true story and all that stuff, but I don't know if they could have done more with the characters or maybe done more with the dialogue or done more with, you know, setting up certain scenes that it would have had more of an impact because as the movie goes, it's strong all the way through, but then it just kind of ends when everything gets resolved. You know, once you find out what, you know, what happens at the end, I guess. And then the movie's just over. Again, the movie is really good. It doesn't take, you know, it, it, it takes, you know, it's 75 percent of a star away so it's left with 4.25 out of 5 it's a really good movie if you like ensemble casts this is definitely a movie for you so do check it out 
Very good, sir. Where do you want to go from there? Um, how about the Hunger Games? All right. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, part two. The final entry, God help us, and I hope so, in the Hunger Games <laughs> trilogy of books. Uh, let's see here. It's directed by Francis Lawrence. And, of course, stars Jennifer Lawrence, Josh Hutchinson, Liam Hemsworth, Woody Harrelson, Elizabeth Banks, Julian Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman in his final performance, Jeffrey Wright, Sam Clayton, Jenna Malone, Stanley Tucci in a brief cameo appearance, more or less, and Donald Sutherland. Uh, all right, so basically this is, uh, it picks up immediately after the events of Part 1. Katniss is being uh, looked after after she was attacked by PETA. And she then, of course, is trying to figure out how to um, deal with what has been done to PETA and her responsibility in that he ended up the way he ended up, as well as try and be the Mockingjay to the best of her ability and yet also kill Snow. The movie then, of course, goes from there and reaches its penultimate conclusion, um, and subsequently kind of does its little epilogue thing as well. Um, now I said this before, and so I apologize for repeating myself, but when I read the books, I felt that the move, that the books ended in the, the only way that they could. So I found that the ending to the books you could argue was a good ending because they didn't, she didn't try and make it into anything other than it, it, you know, anything else that it needed to be. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the ending was satisfying. And so to see that played out on screen, also knowing exactly more or less how it was going to play out, you could still see all of the distances and all of the things that they tried to change from the books, as well as how they were still keeping in line with the book as much as possible. And it really wasn't that egregious or anything in that, in, in that regard, in terms of the breaks that they made from the books. Um, but as everything leads up and you just know where it's going, especially if you've read the books, um, and I think even if you haven't read the books, you can kind of get a sense of where it's going instead of instead of like having this nail biting. Oh, my gosh, I don't know what to expect. They they really push you and prod you into the direction of guys. Can you see how this is supposed to play out? If you don't see how this is supposed to play out, then we can't help you. And then when it does reach its inevitable conclusion, you're just kind of left with. Meh. And then it was, then they do the epilogue portion, and it's just slow. It's so ungodly slow. And I get that they were, that this was something they were trying to be faithful to the book at, but the simple fact of the matter is, is that because of the way that they led up to the epilogue, they couldn't tell the epilogue in exactly the same way. Makes sense. Um, but by doing so, 
the epilogue that you get for me was highly dissatisfactory. And this is the end. This is it. This is how it's going to, you know, drop and cut to credits. And it's just so boring. So very, very boring. Uh, the other thing that I have is, and again, I understand they were making the best of a bad situation. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, he was just the CGI stuff that they did for him. I, I will grant you they did the very best they could. Um, and the only sad part was is that it was so blatantly obvious. And then on top of that, they then either did some rescripting and or some reshoots to limit his CGI-ness so that it was just going to be more or less still images. Uh, not exactly, but that's about as best as I can give it to you without spoiling major aspects of the ending. And then presented information that could have come from him through other people, which again, uh, you know, but I just felt like even though they were making the best of a bad situation, they did not succeed. So I'm not going to hold that aspect of it against it, but it was still very blatant in my mind and definitely pulled me out of the movie. So at the end of the day, I just, this movie was overly long, slow, and unfulfilling. But it wasn't terrible. It it was not terrible. I come away with it was just okay. Two and a half stars. What do you got there, Tim? I really like this movie. Um, I, I guess it's because I was super disappointed with the part one of the mocking Jay or whatever the hell this movie is called. <laughs> um, and I'm really glad that they split bo this book in half because the first half of the book, the reason why I didn't like it is because where I thought there could have been more action, there was obviously no action. Like the whole thing when they're going to get PETA, they're infiltrating snows, that building it shows them like on the route going to that building and then they're in the building and then it stops. Like you don't see anything that happens and that's it. It's like that could have been a really cool action scene and just overall it was a missed opportunity and the next thing you knew the movie was over. And that's basically what I thought the whole movie was, was kind of a mixed, a, a big missed opportunity when it came to the entertainment factor. However, I'm glad they did this because part two really starts off with a bang. You really get dropped into the action because this movie is just, I mean, it's just very exciting. You know, they were able to take their time with the storytelling, for example. You know, there were impressive and good action in moments throughout the film, especially like the scene when uh, they're down in the sewer and they do this really cool shot over, uh, I think it's, is it, is it Gail? I, I, not Gail. Uh, the one dude who turns out to be a dick, apparently, and you know, kills her sister or whatever. I, I can't, I don't even know what happened. That's I, whatever. There's a really cool shot of over his shoulder and he has a bow and arrow with a fire. I think it's him. And you think one of those creature sewer monsters is going to pop out because the camera's right there. And you, you see him kind of like turning over a corner with his arrow, uh, with his bow out. And then he slowly, you know, just slowly takes his time to pull the arrow back and sits there. And there's no music. You're just hearing everything 
you know, all, all the natural sounds. And you just think one of those creatures are going to, are going to jump out. And then all of a sudden he lets the arrow go and then, you know, the fire happens and there's light in the, you know, down the tunnel, you know, you actually can see the depth of the tunnel and it's really cool. It's really, really cool because they took their fucking time to tell, to do all this stuff, to actually build tension in this fucking movie. And that's one thing I appreciate about these films especially the first film and the second film, is because they take their time to build the tension and they just take their time, period, to tell a good story and to actually try to have good action in it being, um, you know, like making sense to the story. And so that those are, those are my positives, you know? A, a lot of stuff that I just appreciated. You know, there wasn't a lot of obvious bad CGI, uh, so I appreciated the lack of CGI, um, and I appreciated the use of practical effects in sets. I thought that really added depth and character to the film. It made it more of a rich, a richer film. Uh, and it also added a bit to the characters as well because they're put in this environment and you feel a little bit more for these characters. Like, you know, oh, you know, do you really want to be the first, do you really want to lead the group because you might die? Or, ooh, do you really want to be in the back of the group because you might die? Ooh, do you really want to turn that corner because you might die? You know, there's more of that feeling that I kind of missed from the first two films, uh, especially the second movie, because still the second movie is my all-time favorite. So the movie had more depth when it came, when it came to the aesthetics and the, and the filmmaking itself. But the... The, the script, the writing, the dialogue when it comes to the love story uh, is, is just bad. Like, I kind of knew that the heart and soul of the movie, I guess, is the love story of these movies. I don't know about the books because I never read the books. So I don't really know really what the heart and soul of the books are. But the movie is basically, you know, she's torn between Peta and this other dude played by Thor's brother. And... It's just fucking sappy because you really don't understand why she falls for Pita and continues to fall for Pita even though he's an asshole throughout most of this movie and just a wimp. And they do a real and, and I think mainly it's the it's the fault of the first movie in which they did a really shitty job at capturing that moment as to why she falls for him or and you know they fall for each other. But they fail more so in the last movie to reintroduce that concept, you know, to make the audience not completely hate him, but actually pull for him and pull for her to get together. It just really doesn't work. Um, another flaw of this movie, again, I don't know if it's the same with the books or not, but I have a feeling the book does a better job at explaining this in some detail, but... When you find out really what's going on, I guess mild spoiler alert for the next 30 seconds, you know, when you find out that, I, I keep wanting to call him Gale for some reason, but Liam Hensworth's character, you know, the guy who you think she's going to end up with for, you know, for the most part of the last movie, I guess, um, you turn out that he's apparently a bad guy and he summoned the ship to blow everybody up or something at the, you know at the end of the film uh and all these other people are bad guys you know i got an idea that something was up with pre the president uh, not the, the president but uh, julian moore's character i i got that from the beginning but it just didn't make sense to, at the end of the film 
And so I think to me, at least, that's where this movie falters. Because if it doesn't make sense, it kind of negates all the stuff that, not all the stuff that I did like uh, aesthetically wise, but all the character stuff and all the original storytelling pertaining to those characters. You know, all, all the stuff that happens at the end negates all that goodness. Because they failed at, at, at hinting at, you know, at, at a different side of these characters in the first place. If any of that makes any sense at all. Um, but again, it's an entertaining movie. It's a good movie. I can understand why those that are diehard fans of the book might not care for the movie all that much. But I enjoyed it. It's two hours and 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I was bored by a little of it. It had it didn't have as many endings as Lord, as Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, but just about. Um, but this movie comes up to be 3.75 out of 5 in my book. Significantly better than part 3. Uh, before we move on though, man, I, I have to ask, uh, what are what are your like how do you rank all the movies? Uh, let's see here. We both gave part 1 a 3 and we don't have the information listed on the website in terms of like we do it now. So, because I was scrolling back to try and find our scores, and I think if I had to rank them, I would probably do mm, two, one, three, four. I guess. Cool. Yeah. So, I'm- Catching Catching Fire, I guess, would probably if if I'm remembering correctly, would edge out Hunger Games, and then definitely Mockingjay Part One would be three, and Mockingjay Part Two would be the lowest. Yeah, I feel yeah. So. But obviously, the third one last in my book. Yeah, indeed, indeed, you gave it a three, and this was a three point seven five. <laughs> All right, here we go. So that leaves us with. The 33. It's a 2015 English-language Chilean survival survival drama film uh, directed by Patricia Riggin, written by Miko Alane, Craig Borton, and Jose Rivera. Uh, It's filmed based on the real-life events of the 2010 mining disaster in which a group of 33 miners are trapped inside the San Jose mine in Chile for more than two months. And uh, basically the film stars Antonio Banderas... um, as Super Mario Sepulveda, who sent videos to the rescue fire, rescuers to notify them and let them know what was going on, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it basically it sets it up and shows just over and over and over how terrible the working conditions were and how the owner of the owners just don't even give a shit about the workplace safety or these people or anything. Just you know. Do your shit in the mine and shut the fuck up. And then, of course, disaster strikes. No one can be rescued. No one can get to them. Nothing can be done to help them. And the owners are just like, eh, well, fuck them. They're dead. But then the government steps in and says, ah, oh, fuck you guys. We are going to help these people. And then, so these guys are trapped down there for two months. Antonio Banderas uh, plays the guy who basically kind of steps up as the leader of this whole thing and arranges... Uh, kind, of, kind of keeps the peace he has to um, deal with uh, the media or whatever deal with the government anybody connect to the service and eventually 
you know, these guys are let out one by one. Um, Antonio Banderas is clearly not the only person who uh, is in this film. It's got uh, Juliette Binoche, James Brolin's in it, Lou Diamond Phillips, our friend, our good friend, uh, Bob Gunton, who we actually dedicated like a three squared to a while back. Um, Gabriel Byrne. So definitely quite a few people that you are familiar with are in this film. Now, while I definitely felt like this was a this was a pretty solid effort overall. My biggest problem from this film comes from the fact like that they just simply were beating you over the head. We get it. The company's a piece of shit company. The company's not going the owners don't care whatever. And they were just drilling that into your head over and over and over to the point where they kind of forgot about the miners themselves. And that's who the story needed to be about. Now that's clearly, they obviously tell the story and they get down there and everything, but it almost comes at the expense of just trying to rub it into the company, rub it into the face of the company and the corporation who were behind the disaster. Um, And I just felt like it really was too heavy handed and started kind of becoming formulaic by the end of by by the end of the layout. So just once you discovered who the bad guys were, okay, well now we can kind of focus a little bit more on the humanitarian as or the humanity of it. And then like, oh, but, but remember, remember what these guys are struggling against and why they're here. And it just you know, enough guys, enough. That being said, strong performances and it was interesting to see uh, this particular take on it. And I did actually like, I, I thought it was a very good move to have this be kind of a joint effort. Uh, again, remember, this is this is kind of those formats where you get to see good performances and increase your roster of people to see in other movies because uh, it is Chilean. So you get people like Mario Casas, uh, Juan Pablo Raba, and... Uh, and other actors and actresses in that vein so that it's not just these American or English, whatever, actors that you've come to know. You're now getting other people who can then maybe hopefully make that transition. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I, I did like the movie and I thought it was pretty damn decent. I give it 3.5 out of 5, but just way too much heavy-handedness and a sense of formula kind of brought it down. There you go, Tim. Bring us home. Yeah, this is an interesting movie to review for me because it's not that it's a bad movie because the story of itself carries so much weight and the story itself is pretty amazing. And and when you see the story, uh, you know, in, in the contact, you know, in, in film form, in movie form, it's pretty, you know, it, it's pretty fascinating and amazing and pretty crazy once you get an idea of really how far these guys were down in fact i didn't realize how far these guys were down i I remember hearing about this on npr and watching it on uh the nightly news and stuff when it all happened but i really didn't get the sense of how crazy all this shit was and by watching this movie it's it's nuts and it's entertaining to to see all this stuff kind of unfold but the movie itself is not good. I did, I mean, some more positive stuff about it, I guess. I like the opening of the movie. 
I thought the flyover shot and the quick zoom-in shot of the cave was pretty cool. And I thought the CGI work and the whole sequence of the cave falling apart or falling down or, co- or caving in on itself, I guess, is uh, was well done. You know, I was actually like, you know, kind of worried for these guys. And I'm not going to say I freaked out, but like... It was kind of heart pounding and like, oh shit, oh shit, go, 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 go type of type of feeling. So that was well done. It's just everything else. Um, the main problems with these movies or with this movie are its uh, its characters, its casting choices and their choices, the filmmakers choices of how to exactly tell this story. Um, and on top of all that, I think what really brings all these issues together is the film's lack of focus because the main focus that this movie has is on the personality or trying to per, uh, trying to uh, personalize the characters as in they're trying to make them more relatable so you know anybody who's watching it can be like "Ooh, i like elvis presley i think that guy's funny and i i like him you know oh that guy's retiring soon and he got stuck down there i like him i like antonio banderas uh because his character is the fighter and the hopeful who's fighting for his wife and daughter and la bamba i mean daniel day lewis i mean dime lou diamond phillips lou diamond back phillips (laughs) he's the he's the character who's feeling guilty uh for himself because he's the supervisor who feels responsible for everything that had happened. You know, all those kind of cliches to make you feel sorry for these characters and therefore enjoy the movie a little bit more. Um, but on top of that, in regards to the characterizations themselves uh, in the storytelling, is that all, uh, um, all of the humor and the characterizations that takes place above the ground... You know, regarding like the family members, uh, you know, like the whole the the bits uh, pertaining to the guys, one of the guy, one of the miners' ex-wife and his mistress bickering at each other, very kind of comedic moments that feel super out of place, even when they're not even going into, not even when they're trapped in the mine. I mean, before all that, like the morning of when they're setting up these characters, you see this shit and you're like, God, I mean, this is a little like stereotypical, cliched. Or maybe not cliched, but a little too stereotypical, and it just kind of didn't feel 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 right. I mean, I'm sure all this stuff happened, but did it really happen in this particular way, for example? Uh, but all of that stuff completely, I thought, undermines uh, undermines the drama and the hardship and the struggle that all the Chilean miners underground are actually experiencing. But on top of that. You have the copious amounts of, of white people. I mean, I mean, I shouldn't say copious amounts, but Bob Gutton. How white can you get with Bob Gutton? He was born in Santa Monica, California, and he was the villain in Shawshank. He is, he is, he is very white and very American, and he is playing the Chilean president. Not the best... <laughs> not the best casting point, uh, casting choice, I think. I mean, I'm sure they could have gotten somebody else. I mean, he's not necessarily an A-list big draw for films. He's a great actor. I love him to death, but a, a little too out of place, I think. 
And it takes you a little while to get used to seeing the white actors in this movie before you forget or, or, or until you remember again that this is actually based on a true story and maybe you should just pay attention to the story and not let all the the poor acting and character choices get in the way too much. Um, let's see, I'm going to go through my notes here so I don't take too much time. Um, let's see... Storytelling-wise, uh, the movie progresses a little too fast. Uh, the days go by too fast without any much-needed storytelling and character building. You know, how can we know exactly what... Not know exactly, but how can we get a taste of what these guys are going through if they get trapped down there and, you know, 10 minutes later, it's three days later. Two minutes later, it's 10 days later. One minute later, it's... You know, it's like they blow through it to get to the to get to the part where they finally the drill kind of goes through without any without any build up and the movie is a good 2 hours and 7 minutes including credits and it still feels rushed it still feels rushed as hell um but overall I do think that the movie should have been shot in its native langu- language um it's about Chilean miners it should have been shot in its native language uh especially i think the way that the way that they shot this movie and the way and the particular choices that they chose in the making of this film because that's the audience that i think will easily identify with the actions and the honest traditions and characterizations that are depicted on screen you know like the things that i thought were out of place and too goofy and especially the dialogue it might not have been as goofy and out of place if it was in their native language and not in English. Therefore, you know, because like, as we all know, things get lost in their translation. You watch a Japanese movie, a Chinese movie, and any Asian movie, most of the time it's better when it's not dubbed over. And that's why things are better off le- le- uh, left to left left to you know uh, to not uh, to uh, to not for the interpretation not being force fed to you, I should say. Um. And exact and, and lastly, this is the last thing I'll say: the movie is a very PG clean version of the story itself. It doesn't really delve deep past the surface level drama and. At times, it's melodramatic, kind of like Telenova, telen, uh, yeah, Telenova uh, uh, melodramatic. Uh, and it does that for the sake of melodrama, it feels like. Um, like, where do they shit? You know, where, where do these Chilean miners shit? I mean, do they receive real packaged food or not whenever they do finally, you know, get in contact with the above folk? You know, like, how, how are they getting food? How do they get all this stuff that they have? Like, if it looks like the, the mind becomes a bachelor pad really quick, and you just really don't understand how that happens from an audience standpoint. Because they totally, uh, because they totally look, especially the miners, they totally look revive once they do get discovered. It's all rushed. It's all rushed. You know, what exactly made these men heroic and compelling? That's what it comes down to. What makes these men heroic and compelling? The movie never really explores those characters, and it only relies on the overall story and the events themselves to compel. There's really no feeling or fear in hopelessness feeling at all. 
It's almost like the filmmakers just expected that all those that are watching this movie already knows the outcome, and therefore they really didn't need to do anything to evoke any sort of emotion or 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 fear or hopelessness from the audience. So I give this one 2.75 out of 5. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be The Good Dinosaur, The Night Before, and Ricky and the Flash. And without further ado, that is going to bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Antonio Banderas, I get to say this. Cats are very independent animals. They're very sexy, if you want. Dogs are different. They're familiar. They're obedient. You call a cat, you go, Cat, come here. He doesn't come to you unless you have something in your hand that he thinks might be food. They're very free animals, and I like that. This is Tim saying that I've heard Matt attempt to say the ending spiel as fast as he can, but he usually always fucks up, so I commend you with successfully getting through it as quick as you did. Take care, cinephiles, and we will talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>